0: Jeremiah chapter 4, then on page 875 is our catechism lesson, 875, and then it goes over into 876. Jeremiah 4, the first four verses… Once again, God's holy and inspired word, Jeremiah 4, verses 1 through 4. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear, as the Lord lives, in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, Then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire. And burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. And number question number eighty-seven, in the back of the red hymnal. Really a wonderful, wonderful summary of the grace of repentance unto life. So we'll say the answer together with with one voice and then consider these things together as we return to God's Word in Jeremiah 4. And what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Beloved people of God, in the gospel of Mark, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry is a very clear and monumental declaration from our Lord. The time is fulfilled, he says, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That call of the kingdom is met with first, or we see first, a call to repentance. And it it causes us to ask, how how central is this repentance? You know, if you go to a place like Ephesians 2, it doesn't say, for by grace you have been saved through repentance. And yet, we see that in the call to believe, repentance often comes right alongside faith. Repent and believe. It is a, thus a, a, central and, and doctrine, a central and foundational doctrine, essential and foundational, as the, the catechism says, saving grace. But we need to understand that it's it's not something that. We do, and because of of our doing it, God then saves us. And we need to be very careful about that. And the, the confession actually lays this out wonderfully well when it says this. Although repentance is not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. None may expect pardon without repentance. Our repentance is not an act in which we rest, as if to say we can stand before God and say, well, look, I have repented. That's not what we do. And yet, those who do not repent are not to expect the pardon that comes from God and and His gospel. A possible illustration For this might be something like uh, studying to learn material on an exam or or a test before you take the test in class. If you never learn the material, if you never study, you are going to fail. But when you are studying and, and learning the material, memorizing things, that is not the actual taking of the test. Taking the test with your acquired knowledge is what's going to get the grade, what's going to achieve the good and the passing grade. But you may not expect to succeed. In fact, you will fail if you do not know the material that you're expected to know. Something similar holds with faith and repentance. Don't poke too many holes in that illustration, as I understand it's not perfect. But something similar holds with with faith and, and repentance. Faith receives the merits of Christ, it is that instrument by which God. And it sends forth the benefits of Jesus, forgiveness and righteousness. But repentance is so absolutely essential that it always exists alongside of faith. Faith saves alone. Right? Faith alone, but as we've talked about when we think of sanctification, the faith that saves is never alone, but it's accompanied by other saving graces like sanctification and like repentance, John Calvin says that repentance constantly flows from faith and that it's born of faith. But what is this repentance and and what does it look like in our lives? We're going to use Jeremiah and we're also going to use one verse from our reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 to consider these things uh, together at the closing of another Lord's Day. So the first idea is this, repentance is a turning of life. It's a turning of your life. People will say, well, What is repentance? Some people may say, Well, a short definition for repentance is saying sorry. It's saying that you're sorry. That is, is repenting. Now, the, the, the answer that we just read together shows that there is, is much more involved in it. And Jeremiah 4 it is really a wonderful Old Testament instance of a call to repentance. And what we see in verse 1 is that it's a returning, a returning unto the Lord. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. That's the Hebrew word shuv, which is a a turning around, a changing of things. In Psalm 71, it kind of illustrates the, the, the kind of turning that you see in this word shuv, Uh, Psalm 71 verse 20, you have made me see many troubles and calamities, or you who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. In other words, I've been down in the depths, you are going to bring me out and make me to see blessedness. What you have brought me to in terms of my suffering and anguish, you will turn me around and bring me into the land of living, living, the land of blessing. It says, from the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will return me. So, that is the way that Jeremiah pictures repentance. It's a a turning around, a turning of the entire life. We'll be interacting with Calvin a few times tonight, and, and this is his definition of repentance. He says, repentance is the true turning of our life to God, turning your life towards God. It's a turning that arises from a pure and earnest fear of Him, and it consists in the mortification, the killing of our flesh and the old man, and here's my word, I couldn't get it last week, let's see how I do, and the vivification of the spirits. I don't want to admit how many times I practiced that this week, just so I got it right for you, and I won't try it again. Now, the killing of the old man and the putting on, the living of the new man. We see mortification. We also see vivification there in in 4 verse 1b. If you remove your detestable things from my presence. In other words, there is a, a cleansing, a purging of the life. Now here, of course, Jeremiah is speaking to the people of God. In that context, of course, you have the rebellion uh, the straying from the law of God, introdu- introduction of idolatry and all kinds of sin in the people of God, and God threatening exile. And they're right on the precipice of that, Jeremiah, lamenting over Jerusalem, weeping over the coming destruction of, of the city. So Israel would have understood it in that way, re- removing the idols literally from our midst. But we take it as the people of God, the inspired scripture. Uh, our Bible that we have received, and we see the very same call that is placed before us, remove that which is detestable from your life, purge it, kill the flesh and the old man, and cause by the Spirit, put on the new man and walk in newness of life, the newness of life that is created for you in, in Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit. It's a life change, it's a, it's a turning around. Much So much more than saying sorry is true repentance. We see that it must begin in the heart, back to Calvin. Whoever is moderately versed in Scripture, which I hope we would all aspire to be that, whoever is moderately versed in Scripture will understand by himself, without the admonition of another, that when we have to deal with God, nothing is achieved unless we begin from the inner disposition of the heart. We've been speaking about that a lot lately, haven't we? But in The Sermon on the Mount, the book of James, where does our life before God begin? It begins in the heart, and the only way that we genuinely and sincerely live for God is from the heart, that it begins there. Joel 2, verse 13, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. If we would be moderately versed in Scripture, if we would want to be biblical Christians, then we understand this easily, right from the start. Whatever we do before God must begin in the heart. That is the the center of where God is concerned. False repentance fake repentance is basically primarily occupied with outward displays of penitence, trying to appear as though you are sorry, or efforts to reorder your life without including a genuine turning from the heart. Those would probably be the two of the main ways in which false repentance manifests itself. Appearing, trying to appear as though you're sorry, whether to God or to someone else, or trying to to reorder your life without the help of God's grace, without the the leaning upon Him from the heart that produces a a, a turning of, of the life. Repentance does not primarily consist in weeping and fasting, though there is an appropriateness to those things in our lives, but our principal care ought to be to rend the heart and not the garment only. Calvin puts it this way, outward uprightness of life is not the chief point of repentance for God looks into men's hearts. There's also this this very interesting image that Jeremiah uses here uh, in chapter 4 and verse 3, sow not among thorns, break up the fallow ground, it says, and sow not among thorns. One theologian puts it this way, a man cannot apply himself seriously to repentance without knowing himself to belong to God, and no one is truly persuaded that he belongs to God unless he has first recognized God's grace. In other words, it is is the gospel that will help us. It's It's our only way towards true repentance. We will not give ourselves unto this turning unless we know ourselves to belong to God. We do not know that we belong to God unless we give ourselves. We embrace the call of the gospel and God's grace in Christ. So what what does it mean to sow among thorns? To sow seeds of repentance in a heart that has not embraced these things? So Calvin says, no one will ever reverence God but he who trusts that God is forgiving to him. No one will gird himself willingly to observe the law, but him who will be persuaded that God is pleased by his obedience. We sow among thorns when we seek to show forth or muscle our way to a repentance that does not begin in a heart that has been tilled by God's grace. Soil that has been turned over, and the moisture has been brought up, and it's ready to receive that seed that will produce fruit. Someone will say, well, I've got this problem in my life, and, and I recognize that it's a problem, and, and maybe their, their reason for wanting to deal with it is external, and wanting to appear as though they're falling more in line with, with God's Word. They'll say, I've got this problem, so what am I going to do? I'm going to set my mind to not doing it anymore. I'm not going to to fall into this anymore. I'm I'm going to convince myself. I'm going to to show myself how foolish it is, and I'm not going to do it. I'm going to put forth this gargantuan effort to not allow myself to fall into it. Is this a winning strategy? No. No. There is a place in the Christian life for gargantuan effort, right? Second 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us uh, cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. There's a, there's a place for gargantuan effort, but it must begin with the Spirit. By the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body, in all of our doing, as Christian people, in all of our doing, we must remember first and foremost that it is not we who do it, but God who does it by His grace in us. So, sow not among thorns. Break up the fallow ground. Give your heart to the working of God's grace in you. Rely upon the Lord as an inner act of the soul, of the heart, give yourself to Him the grace that comes to us in the gospel of Christ. It begins with repentance. Of course, repentance involves saying sorry. It involves naming and owning your own inability. It involves, from the start, saying that you do not have the strength in you to produce the kind of fruit that God will produce in you by His grace. We see also in Jeremiah 4 that repentance proceeds from earnest fear of God. We remember that definition um, that Calvin gave to us, spoke of the, the law of God. A mind which is repentant is a mind which has considered the reality of divine judgment. So verse 4 in Jeremiah 4, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire. And burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. When these thoughts are fixed in the mind, when these realities are, are meditated upon, that God will one day judge the world and he will make all things known and he will judge the thoughts and the intentions of the hearts of men and all their deeds. The miserable man will not rest, he will not breathe, he will not do anything. Freely, even for a moment, until he finds another way of life, another mode of life, as Calvin puts it, that will allow him to stand firm in the judgment. How can we stand firm in the judgment? Only in and through Jesus Christ. We are to contemplate these things. Now, of course, we need to understand how, how do we do it? it is, does meditating upon the last day, the day of judgment, are we to, to, be, to be seized with terror, paralyzed with fear? Well, no. We know that in Jesus Christ we, we have a filial fear, a, a fear of God as our Father because He is powerful and majestic and holy and righteous. So we consider Him all of those ways. But the sinner who has not repented, there ought to be a, a terror which seizes the soul and makes him say, I cannot do anything until I, I find a way from out of this wrath and curse. It's something that awakens the soul from the slumber, that brings it from death to life. It's kind of like when you are very late for something and you realize you're going to wake up, maybe you missed an alarm, or maybe a parent waking up a child for school that continually is going back to sleep, or the the fourth time the parent walks in there and you got to be out the door in 12 minutes, it's not going to be kind of gently nudging the child out of bed, right? You're walking in there, you're clapping, you're yelling, you're getting them up, you're picking them out of bed perhaps. The contemplation of divine judgment, the contemplation of the last day for an unrepentant sinner is something that wakes the soul from sleep, and it wakes up in earnest at the realization that judgment is coming. There's also another way in which we we contemplate the the final judgment uh, in these things. It's not just the contemplation of sinners being condemned, but the fact that God, our Lord, our King, our Savior, the one to whom we, we orient all things, whom we love, and to whom we are devoted, we love God, we We want to serve Him and honor Him. We want to think His thoughts after Him. Uh, We want to order our lives according to His law and His character. As we think about the day of final judgment, we realize how much God hates sin. And since He hates it, we ought to hate it as well. It's not just the fear of coming judgment for sinners, but also the way in which God will exercise His hatred for all that is opposed to Him. In other words, we will hate sin more when we contemplate how God will act against it in the divine judgment. So, Jeremiah gives us this wonderful picture then of repentance as a a turning of life. Yes, it is a naming and owning your sin, bringing it before the Lord, but it is a a turning of of life. A heart contemplates divine judgment, is moved to embrace Christ and the gospel, repents from the heart, and endeavors in all of life to remove the evil things, remove the detestable things from among you, as it says in Jeremiah 4. Would an all-knowing and all-sovereign God accept anything less than a genuine and all-encompassing life change? no, does that mean everything is perfect for a repentant heart? No. Does that mean you repent and everything? No. It doesn't mean that you are sinless. There is remaining corruption. But I love the way the catechism puts it. With full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Is it your purpose to obey God in all things? Are you endeavoring to obey God in all things. The wonderful thing about knowing that God sees all and that He judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart is that He can see that. Can He see a full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience from your heart and in your life? So, a couple of things um, with the time remaining. Some characteristics of of true repentance, further characteristics of true repentance that we see in in 2 Corinthians 7. What does it really look like? Someone who is is turning unto God. What we see in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 7: Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So, right there, you have in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul saying, there is true and false repentance. You need to be aware of it. True repentance looks like this in verse 11. See what earnestness this godly grief produced in you. What is earnestness? Well, it's that person who awakes from sleep, realizing that he or she is late and and needs to, to be in a hurry. There's an earnestness when someone realizes that he or she has broken God's law, has brought his fatherly displeasure, if you are a child of God. If if they are not a believer, a child of God, then their their earnestness will be towards the gospel in and of itself, for the first time embracing the Savior in faith. Calvin calls this earnestness a diligence and attention to escaping the devil's snares. From the heart, there is this fundamental recognition that your sin must be dealt with, that it's very serious. It's a very serious matter. Also, secondly, in verse 11, there's an eagerness to clear yourselves, as Paul says. And now, there's some discussion about what exactly he's speaking of here in 2 Corinthians 7. Uh, towards the Corinthian church could have been something that was referenced in First Corinthians. Most scholars believe there was another letter in between First and Second Corinthians. So there's there's varying opinions on this in the scholarly world. But the the important issue is that this is something Paul pointed out to them. They recognized their sin. Could have been something like in First Corinthians five, where there was this very immoral sexual relationship that was going on inside the church, and and Paul says, basically, put these people outside of the community. Could have been something like that. Could have been something else. But Paul points it out to them. They recognize the error of their ways, and they come to repentance. So, earnestness. Then, secondly, eagerness to clear yourselves. This is not about proving innocence. You know, uh, you see this in young children and adults, too. They're accused of something, and even if they are rightfully accused, they might start to maneuver and try to show themselves to be innocent. That's not what Paul is talking about here. This eagerness to clear yourself is not about proving that you are innocent in the matter, but rather, it's about asking pardon in the way that God allows. So, what is the path of forgiveness in Scripture? Coming before God naming and owning your sin, laying it before Him, and leaning upon His mercy. One of the greatest pictures we have of confession and repentance in the Bible, we sang it this morning, didn't we? Psalm 51. And what is it in Psalm 51? Is, is David hedging it all? How is David seeking to restore his communion with God? Well, he is leaning completely upon the mercy of God. So, Psalm 51 Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Purge me and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The only thing that clears David, that cleanses him, is the mercy of God. He says, I need you to cleanse me. And that's what Paul is saying was present in the Corinthians. There was an eagerness to clear themselves, but it was the path of cleansing that God has provided for us. No hedging, no justification of the actions, no trying to prove yourself innocent, laying bare what you have done and leaning upon the mercy of God. Third is indignation. What indignation, Paul says? A sinner moans at his sin. A repentant sinner moans at his sin. He hates it. He despises it. He finds fault with himself. He sees his own sinfulness and perversity towards God. A good test for whether or not this indignation is present in uh, the heart of someone who is, claims at least to be repentant is whether or not they accept the consequences of their sin. If someone was caught in something and claims that they are repentant, are they content with the consequences, assuming that the consequences are proper, or do they become embittered Is their hearts embittered at the thought of consequences? Further, are they appreciative if someone in their life takes drastic action to help them purge their life of that sin? If all of that is producing frustration and bitterness and anger in the one who is claiming repentance, then it is a great sign that you are not dealing with a heart that is truly repentant. Because if you despise your sin, you would come to embrace anything that's introduced into your life that allows you to purge that sin from you. And when someone in your life takes action to see to it that you are not forever caught in the snare of that sin, you would see that they are doing it for your good. What indignation. Paul goes on to say, what, what fear. This is connected to earnestness there at the beginning, but uh, it's not only a disquiet of your soul, but Calvin calls it a humility that keeps us cautious from falling back into sin. Are you careful that, to make sure that you do not fall back into that sin? we deserve condemnation. It's the the heart that says, I deserve condemnation, and God is a just God. And a repentant heart says, I deserve condemnation. God is just, so I will remain humble before Him that He might bless me with uh, His Spirit. Next, Paul speaks of a a longing, uh, a longing to see your life filled with obedience, a longing to see your life look differently than in the shadow of great failure and sin, a longing to be better for the sake of God's glory. All of this, of course, happens in the, in the context of, of the gospel, but there's that longing to produce fruit according to God's grace. There's zeal Paul mentions a zeal. This is the, the energy that fuels a repentant life. It makes it go. Kind of an interesting thing culturally, there's this kind of private, privately funded space race now, a couple of billionaires racing to see uh, if they can conquer space. Now, there are, multi- there are many billionaires in the world. I don't know how many, probably in the hundreds, Uh, there are many billionaires in the world, and maybe they joke about, you know, well, I should get in the the space race, and I should try and see if I can launch my own spaceship. But the point is, there's only only a few who are actually doing it, because they're zealous. It's that energy that makes it go. It turns the engine over. And for a repentant heart, this zeal is what gives life to the endeavoring after, the purpose of an endeavoring after new obedience. Zeal. Next, we're almost done. Next, punishment. Punishment. This is a, a desire to bring ourselves through discipline and shame. It's almost a, a shaming, a self-shaming of the soul without despairing, without giving yourself over to despair. It's, it's an owning of the fact that, that there ought to be something a removal of comfort and graces, a, a turning away of God's fatherly pleasure upon you, a, a realizing that all of these things are going to happen when we fall into grievous sins. So C- Calvin says it's a soul that's stricken by dread of divine judgment. So there's a displeasure with self. Perhaps there is a confessing to others, right? You fall into a grievous sin. This this punishment is a willingness to go and to confess to others, because that's difficult to do, isn't it? To make things right. Seeking reconciliation, though it is difficult, not easy. Reordering of your life and your habits. This is the kind of thing that a a repentant heart is willing to put itself through. That's several of the things, and in one verse you have really Uh, Almost a sweeping, not exhaustive, but a sweeping definition of true repentance. All of those things. But where does Paul bring us? He says, All of these things, he says, and and in everything you have proven yourself innocent in the matter. This word for innocence comes from the, the Greek hagios. It's the Greek word that means holy, chaste, pure, without fault. Kind of an amazing thing, isn't it? Paul has said you you have rightfully had indignation towards your sin, earnestness, eagerness to clear yourself, longing to fill your life with better things, a zeal and energy to make sure that you do it, and he's commended him for all of these things, all of the, the, these these aspects of repentance that in many ways are drastic. And show the seriousness of the sin. And at the end he says, in everything you've proven yourself innocent in the matter. Does it mean that they hadn't sinned? That they went through all of this rigmarole and that shows that really they No. They had sinned grievously. We've sinned grievously. But what's the hope? The hope is that when there is true repentance... Before God, we are holy, chaste, and pure because of His cleansing and His renewal. That's the hope of the gospel. That is why in the proclamation of the gospel, we say repent and believe in Jesus Christ because the hope of being in Christ is that before God, you're innocent you're pure you're holy it's the astounding truth that you you come to repentance because of the depth of your sin because of the reality of your sin because you cannot deny it right the the, the earnestness or the eagerness to clear yourself is not about proving your innocence it's about throwing yourself on the mercy of god you cannot deny it And yet, He tosses your sins into the heart of the sea. He separates your sins as far as east is from the west. But He does it through repentance and faith. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. We have a lifelong practice of of repentance And so, when the preacher calls you to come to Christ in repentance and faith, even as a believer, you embrace that call, and you answer that call as you come to Christ, you believe on Him, you repent. And for those who know not Christ, they hear that call, and by God's grace and by God's power, they embrace the Savior. They repent and believe. And the great hope is that we will be found innocent, we will be, we will be found holy, we will be found pure on that great and final day. So may God grant us all, by His grace, true repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we would not dare to deny our sins. If we say we have no sin, we are a liar and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and we pray that you would give us true and abiding repentance that which lasts our whole lives for your honor and for your glory that you might by your grace keep us and sustain us until that great and awesome and final day we are we stand in awe that we can look towards that day with anticipation It's all because of the hope of the gospel. And we pray that you will cause these words to sink down deeply into our hearts. For your honor and glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen.